Well, welcome back to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. This is Ryan Mahoney coming to you from Amy Tower One after a couple week break. Uh, we've everybody's been busy. Uh, it's winter time, raining, everybody's stuck indoors. So we decided uh, we'd travel around all over the place. And so we've had sheep conventions and cattle conventions and all sorts of stuff. And so anyway, we're back and we're recording. But today I'm joined here by my friend uh, Joe Fisher. Joe Fisher is the one of the three co-hosts from the world-famous Angus Underground podcast and previous guest of this show before he got famous. And so I'm really excited to welcome back Mr. Joe Fisher. Welcome. Wait, so this is this is an opinion show, right? So I like I can say back by popular demand, even if it's not true, right? Well, yeah. I mean, well, if I demand you back, then it's popular, right? Like, because I, one person said you should come back and listen. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and necessity is a great motivator, too, yeah, right? <laughs> for sure. For sure. But no, super stoked to have you on. And it's, it's always good to catch up. I mean, we live, what, hour and a half away from each other, but it's hard to get together because it's just far enough away where you can't go every day. Yeah, but, but we're then, a California hour and a half away, which means it could be four hours or it could be uh, an hour and a half, right? It could be. It depends on traffic. Depends on traffic. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. During COVID, we went and saw each other, what, once a week? We visit and hang out, have coffee. That was a great time. Yeah, we were meeting halfway. That was awesome. Yeah, because it was like 30, 40 minutes for us. Yeah, yeah was it was cool. great. We could do yeah. that and have breakfast and coffee and get back Nobody to work. Nobody on and, the roads. And oh, now... Although, you know, those last storms, like everybody's getting a little nervous about like weather things, different events, like everybody worries and recommends everybody shuts down. So they shut down schools and put alerts out. Don't travel severe weather warning. And, you know, it's just a rainstorm. And those days are nice because there's no traffic anymore. Like oh, it's it's, it's amazing how many people that get off the road by that. <laughs> you know, what's amazing is how many people don't know how to navigate the elements anymore. Like yeah. in these mountain counties, especially, it's nuts, man. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine. I mean, just driving in dry weather down here, the traffic's crazy. But so yeah. you guys, you guys are on the peripheral of the causeway a little bit where the main sheep hub kind of is, not your hill country. Do you guys have any damage or issues with that? Uh, with the red, no, not, not really. I mean, the rainstorms were great. They we had breaks in between and it was nice. And, we had enough grass where the ground held in where guys planted wheat, that stuff, the ground moved everywhere, but you know, where stuff was established in our pastures, it was good. It was a good rain. So, and where are you at in a stage of production right now? Like you got lambs on the side of you, your wean, what do you got? We're just starting our weaning. So we, we lamb out there October and then um, we're just starting our weaning now. So um, we wean, we wean, I, I like weaning early so we can get a good flush prior to breeding. So we wean, I try to wean first of February. So you get February, March, April. So three months of flushing. Um, typically we get them all weaned by March 1st. So you're getting two solid on, uh, on at least everything. So two plus months of flushing. And um, so we're just starting weaning. And, um, but we also do it based on like feed and where things are at. And, um, if we have really lush feed, we'll wean early cause the lambs are usually really big. And like, so like last year we weaned early cause we were weaning lambs at 115, 20 pounds this time of year. And we'd wean early, but we'd leave them all in the native Hills and utilize that real good lush feed. And then this year, uh, we have a lot of moisture, but it's been cold. So the grass is short, um, much shorter than last year. We have more moisture in last year, but no, nowhere near the grass. And the quality's not there either. 
And so, but this year we're weaning, but we're doing it to basically um, take the ewes out of the lambs to get more lambs, get more better, get better feed to the lambs. Cause you know, 250 ewes eat a lot of pasture. They eat almost twice to three times what a lamb is going to eat. And so by pulling those out of those bunches and then setting our rotations with just lambs or with maybe a handful of ewes, that really helps the pasture management and making sure you're getting good groceries into those sheep. You keep pears on short feed for too long. Um, it can hurt the lambs just because you're having to harvest the grass through the ewe and then turn it into milk and then back to the lamb. And oftentimes the lamb's short by the time that's done. So, um, you know, we wean in good feed, we wean in bad feed you know, but it, we have to do slightly different things. We got to be a little more, we have to bunch the ewes up into tighter bunches on short feed and spread out the lambs more. Um, whereas in the lush feed, it's easy in good feed years, right? You just put them everywhere and everyone's a genius. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everyone's a genius. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, so that's interesting. You brought up in the intro, how we're only an hour and a half away, but I would say the late rains make my feed year. But I'm mm -hmm. hearing from you the early rains, and we've talked about this a little before. Maybe you've talked about it on the podcast, but you need those early rains and warm days, right? And if you get a pop of rain, say, you know, April showers bring May flowers, things, do you guys then go into bringing in additional grazing units, be them cattle or sheep? Or how do you make those decisions? Do you have hard and fast dates, or is it feel or both? No, it's always feel at the end of the day. Um, if you start, if you try to put hard and fast dates on a grass system you tend to get sideways pretty quick because it's hard to you can't guarantee grass <laughs> you can't guarantee rain so you kind of have to play with it um but yeah so uh majority of our feed so late rains make the feed for sure so you know if you get that april rainstorm that gets you to june and that that's you know buys you an extra month of gain on the fastest growing beth best feed because you know it's going to be warm that time of year so you know right any rain you get is going to grow into grass um early rains make the best year because if you get early rains so october rains november rains you got enough heat units you got enough sunlight that you can grow winter feed and that winter feed sustains an animal better than feeding hay through winter so if you can get that 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 feed growth or that pop in the fall, that's really what makes the best year. And in our country, we typically get a rain in the fall that makes some decent feed. This year it was too cold. It was really cold in November this year, November, December, and the grass didn't explode like it should have or would have. I guess. Oh, absolutely. We're in colder country than you, but people can't believe it when we look at the rain reports. They don't, they only tell a portion of the story, right? When, when I yeah. say cows are thinner and calves are lighter than they've been maybe in a long, long time, even drought, drought's tough on you economically, but the animals usually kind of do okay because we're all stewards of the animals and bring them all the feed they need. Right. Or, or yeah. oftentimes we do, we're, we're balancing that economic question, but um, I would definitely say we're a little bit behind this year and hoping on those late rains, but net wise net benefit we're still in net positive. It's always better to see these creeks running out of the side of hills and springs rejuvenated and stuff. Yeah. Um, and well, for I think me, for me I, I always look at it like you get these like, all right, so you get the winter rains and um, on record, we're already above average. For, we got 21 inches for the year. Average is 19. We're already above average rainfall year. Um, what that, even though it's cold and we don't have feed, the ground is saturated, which means it will grow when it warms up. 
Like Absolutely. there's enough moisture in the ground that we're going to get some grass. Now we have a lot deeper topsoils than you guys. So, you know, we like last two years ago, when I think it was two or three years ago, I I think it was because um, you, you guys know it was it was last year because I, I was talking to Dan and and he was and you too. I think you guys were all pretty worried come March or February, March, because that topsoil in that foothill country was drying out fast and everything was dying back. And I was sitting over here at Rio Vista, just like, oh, man, bring me some more animals. We got the best feed we've ever had. Right. It's everywhere because we have that topsoil that held that water, whereas you guys are a lot shorter. And so it, it disappeared quicker. It was apparent for us to yeah. see, too, the demand that trees put on it. I mean, oh. like, and, and all the other perennials that you don't account for. I mean, it's been interesting. We've been in this cycle for six, seven years where it rains and then it dries out and it rains and it dries out. We've been dry for a long stretch here recently. And then I don't know what, two days ago, we got some rain. We didn't get that much rain. We got a half inch and it is so flat wet out there again. And what's interesting is there's a whole generation of ranchers that don't remember that kind of weather. So you see people set up in these feeding systems with a three quarter ton dually pickup that's diesel, right? Weighs a million pounds and they're out feeding a ton of hay and they're buried to the axle. I see sticks sticking out of the ground where they've tried to put sticks under the tires. I'm yeah. like, you are getting that thing out till June, guys. Uh, yeah. And, but but think about it, Ryan. I mean, it's been has it been like 10, 15 years since that was yeah. a, that was a normal. You remember it when we were kids, you don't drive off the roads. You just oh, don't this is a this year is more of a normal year yep. from what I remember as a kid, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. yeah I would for agree. sure. What's it like? Um what what's it like? What are some of the challenges? So so I always get asked, what do you do for shade for your animals? And the best answer or the thing that most people want is trees for shade, right? Because trees kind of it's cooler shade and helps with heat stress. What what are the negatives or what what are the challenges in in running livestock in trees? Like what what do you have to look for in a good ranch running in trees? Like what are in you know. You know, it's interesting you bring up trees, like trees are a good indicator of a lot of things. I mean, if you just have the ability to observe, I remember um, my great uncle telling me, you know, where you get really, really narrow circumference to oaks, which a lot of people in slang would say scrub oaks or something like that, or a lot of the skinny, skinny trunk, but a lot of them. And if you actually cut that thing and counted the rings, you'd find out it is fairly old. It's just really shallow soil. But then when you go to where the trees get bigger and bigger in circumference, like there's still live oaks maybe, but they might be, you know, three foot diameter, right? Um, it's a deeper soil. It's, it's, it's a, it's a more positive grazing environment. And so the challenges with trees, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is one people might not think about, especially in these rainstorms, we've had so much mistletoe growth in a lot of the oaks. And if that mistletoe comes down this time of year, it's kind of it's kind of fibrous. I assume it maybe feels good for their gut. Um, and then it's also green. They grab it and they eat it. And actually, that can that can cause abortions at certain terms of, of pregnancy. Um, you know, a big one is quality fencing. Quality fencing. You get a good fence set up. Like you see all these fences in the valley, the depreciation on those, I don't know, 30, 50 years is what NRCS used to say. You see a lot of those fences are still good quality fences. You come up in the hills, you put a brand new fence and an eight foot live oak falls across it. And then all of a sudden you got splices and you just keeps going and going and going. It's a constant battle. And, and I think that that's one 
when it comes plug and play and people are leasing these ranches all over the place anymore and ranch turnover is, is just higher and higher all the time. Um, I don't think that enough attention probably by producers is paid on fence maintenance. The old school people that have been on these places for years yeah. know you just got to get around your fences and, and we don't even have, I mean, the damage that we've had from tree loss has been incredible. I don't know that it's affected yeah. the animals, Ryan. I don't think it's affected the animals negatively. Um, in a direct in a direct way but the operation has to bear a big cost getting them off of roads all those things yeah i think uh a uh, land landlord understanding of the cost of fencing too because you used to be able to say you know you go to your landlord and say you pay materials we'll pay labor and it ended up working out to be a wash materials are so expensive now and labor is so expensive now that that equation is not the same anymore and it's a it's a huge expense on both but sides. But then then conversely, the specialized labor it takes to get animals back if they get out all the time. It's like so yeah, finding that, that balance even, is weird. Yeah. And then even like somebody who knows how to build a fence. Like a, anybody can throw up wire, but not everybody can build a fence. Like because you gotta have proper tension, you gotta make sure you put your posts the right way, you gotta go over a hill, like fencing a hill and having a piece of wire go from a over a hill and down a valley. And making sure it's good tension, like for sheep fence too, because you have to have it tight to the ground for coyotes. And so, like, how do you get a straight wire to bend that way and not pull posts up out of the valley or fold over on the top of the hill? Like, where do you put your brace post? I mean, that stuff's it's hard to do. And it's no, we've created we've created yeah. a whole host of different decision makers, right? Yeah. Like when, when you think about the way it would have been a hundred years ago, those would have been bigger kind of tracts of land. And maybe you would have fenced around the contours of those hills and the animals would grazing it accordingly around the contours of the hills. But then yeah. when you just look at a topo map and you split a parcel up 17 different ways, <laughs> because everyone has to be the equal yeah. size for whatever sort of land conversion you, you want to do. Um, yeah. Then all of a sudden we're putting fences where they don't need to be. Animals graze yeah. differently than they they are meant to be, right? And uh, that was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got at Cal Poly when I was there. Um, we had a lot of hot wire, and Bart Kramer's was there. Bart uh, worked for worked for Wildlands, a good friend of mine, and uh, was at Cal Poly way before I was. And uh, uh, I don't really meant to, but he said the good thing about hot wire. And not a lot of infrastructural cost is you can really figure out how the cattle graze and how they don't, and then adjust your fences cheaply again. And, um, yeah. you know, maybe that's just putting a bandaid on the fact that we don't have the generational pastoral care of livestock that we used to, that would have known where those animals were anyways. Right. Um, yeah. that, I, I that think it's tough too. Cause like that, that's a, that's a farm. I mean, that's to me, that's symptomatic of the farmer of a farmer fix, right? That's cheap infrastructure. For a rancher leasing a property but that landowner of that property should have a vested interest in good fences both for their own sake and for the sake of their neighbor and for the sake of the wildlife like all of those things play together and you know because no, i completely agree because the landowner, well one because the cow can't produce enough cash to pay enough rent for that landowner to justify putting in a new fence in most circumstances and then the because of that same problem, the rancher can't do the same. You have to do these electric piecemeal things, and it just doesn't work as good. It works good for the farmer temporarily, but it's temporary, and it doesn't, you know, those good solid fences just aren't there. I really like, uh, do you ever get up north? Um, 
Is it the Holiday Ranch up north? They got the giant stone walls. Oh, that's cool. Oh, it's great. He like this guy up there. I think it's Holiday. I'm not. I'm probably. I might be saying it wrong. But up in Red Bluff Country, up that that way, there's okay. a a ranch up there. And what they did is for the last like 30 years, they'd get high school kids to come out there and pick up boulders out of the pastures. And he's built these fences and there is just miles and miles and miles of, you know, six foot tall, three foot wide stone fences through this whole place. And it's just, it's the greatest thing ever because like those don't fall down the same a tree falls on them. It falls on top. It doesn't break it. And like, like that's incredible. So where oh, I grew yeah. up, there's piles of those. Like I grew up in Calaveras yeah. County, Calaveras Tuolumne kind of County. And, and you'd have to check it with Dan on a subsequent episode because he's the resident historian. Right. But I think it was Chinese immigrant labor is, is what I think it was. Um, they'd be hired to hi- make these rock walls and, and, uh, they're all yeah. over the place. If you go to Tuolumne County, there's a great big set of round old corrals built out yeah. of stone. And the cool part for cattle is, is if you kept up with it, they can't see across it. So they didn't even have to be six foot tall. Cattle wouldn't jump it. Um, oh, yeah. So it was kind of, it was kind of neat. Super neat. Yeah. I don't think that helped with your predators though. I think these mountain lions nowadays would just hop up on top of it and then just sit there and then figure out what they wanted to do. And then you got to have dogs and then guard dogs. I don't think a six foot stone fence could keep in talk guard dogs. No, no. I mean, this is cow fence. It's not sheep fence. So (laughs) (laughs) it keeps the sheep in, but not, not the other stuff out, but, but I will, I do want to go back though, because I don't think we addressed your question properly about covering trees. I mean, I didn't really see the benefit or understand the benefit until one of my dear friends, um, I helped him move some grazing units off of some low country. And, and when the wind can just whip through and not be broken up by anything and those small ruminants exposed to the elements, you have to bring in artificial cover of some sort to keep them dry. And I was in Denver, um, the week of the really, really big storm selling a cow actually. And, and I came home and it was interesting because I, I just told you guys, cows are lighter, uh, calves are lighter than they've ever been. <clears throat> and uh, first thing I noticed is the cows were all laying down, but the grass is really short. And that's usually an indicator of a stockman. They've got a full belly, right? Uh, they're laying down by 10 o'clock. You got a lot of feed. That wasn't the case, Ryan. They were tired. The cows were tired from standing, taking a beating from the rain. And so yeah. I could only imagine what it must have been in the valley where there was no trees to break that up and these cows couldn't find cover. I, it had to have been a benefit for them here at least. Yeah. I mean, well, the trees, what trees make good winter range, right? I mean, that's, you know, yeah. if you're going to winter, especially where you get more, more weather. I mean, here in the Sacramento river Delta weather for us, isn't, <laughs> it's not weather. <laughs> you right, know? Right. When, when Jeff Clark sends me a video of like negative 50 and blizzard conditions in South Dakota, that that's weather, but out here it's pretty nice. But, um, but yeah, the more weather you get, the more you need that shelter and those breaks and, ridge lines and stuff like that. Um, what about like with trees? Cause, um, I mean, there's gotta be a balance with trees because trees impede sunlight and sunlight's essential for grass growth. And so if you have too much, like, you know, how do you find that good balance? You know, is, do you, do you have to thin stuff? Do you need to, you know, you cut down, you spend time cutting down old trees. Like, how do you manage, how do you manage that? That's tough. I mean, as you get more canopy, you're going to get less quality grass growth. I mean, that's that's for sure. And then our country that goes farther to the west and has less tree cover um, has more of your 
desirable grazing um, legumes like like um, fillery and and some of those early grasses that really really make cattle grow um, big and strong and healthy and and all livestock for that matter. But um, you know, yeah, it's a challenge. I think there's different perennials. I think there's a diversity of perennials. Once we get up into these hills, other than just the trees. You've got north versus southern exposure. So you have early feed sides of the range and they're going to have late feed sides of the range. I mean, we have places that we try to keep the cattle. We call the 800 acres and it's 800. It's actually more than that acres where we try to concentrate the cattle this time of year because it's all southern exposure. Excuse me. And uh, the northern exposure stuff we'd go into more like May and June. I mean, it's, it's hard to think that that would be that much of a difference but the northern exposed hills are are they're soaking wet right now and almost like kind of uh jungly if you will and there's a there's a whole different yeah, diversity no sunlight over there there's no sunlight and and yeah. and you'll see like um little kind of kind of forbs and things and small brushes down around ankle and even knee high where where grass and desirable grazing plants don't exist as much. And so trying to reduce fuels there is obviously topic du jour amongst landowners um, and, and trying to balance animal health and nutrition with all these other decision makers. I'd say we're at a place in time right now where we're balancing the animal's nutritional needs as well as landowners' demands are are as, as challenging as they've ever been. Is reducing fuels, you, you mentioned reducing fuels there. You're talking about fire. Risk. Yep. Yeah. Um, reducing fuels and developing pasture, are those, um, or, you know, healthy pastures, are those two things um, do those work together? Are they opposed or is they completely different? You know, if you, well, I think that's where maybe, um, I don't know how to phrase this, um, not because I'm trying to be careful or political, but just to make it make sense and be concise, which, you know, I'm terrible at, um, we got, I think that's, I think that's the value of the stockman, Ryan. I think that's the value of the stockman, that institutional knowledge of balancing all your ecology and your livestock and your your economic factors and then your community dynamics. I mean, I know that's the three legs of the holistic stool, but um, I think more value is being placed on that. I, I don't think um, we used to always just say. Um, if it's good for the cattle, it's good for the environment. And I think that that's, that's generally true. That is generally true. But let me ask you this. If it's good for the cattle that I haul them alfalfa hay on a hillside that's a, a big slope, uh, is that good for the ecology? I'd say, well, if you're going to create a lot of erosion and other issues, it's probably not. And maybe for the net benefits of the entire business, it's probably a positive. But I, I think that that's where it gets back to the question of value of a quality steward is the one who who knows that we have to keep this, you know, the foundation that all these principles are built on is the economic model. And we have to have money to build ecology. We have to have money to build community. And so we have to have profitable enterprises. And most ranchers, I would say people that are truly in it for for a business and a lifestyle are are going to support um, their ecology with their animals because they know that's their long-term investment. And then also they have a, a greater spiritual tie to the land, frankly. They really do. Um, and and I think that I think you can do both. I think what gets frustrating for people like me who's grazing, uh, I'll be perfectly honest, I have a host 
a really diverse set of landowners, just like you or anyone else would have. I have um, conservation companies. I have uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife. I have private owners who are retired. I have private owners who are wealthy people that know nothing about cattle. I have private owners who used to run cattle and have their own ideas. And so balancing mm -hmm. all those decision makers is is very, very difficult. Um, uh, honestly, in agency, the one thing that I really like and, and what brought um, your other co-host Dan and I together most is educating more of those folks who sit in, in the more regulatory communities like uh, California Dep Department of Fish and Wildlife and just saying, okay, I know that we said that we had this management checkbox list, right? Would you like me to do the management checkbox list, box list and have the worst managed ground you've ever seen? Would you rather me have adaptive management and miss on some of the checkboxes? Well, what's hard is when you get in those meetings and you're like, did this guy do his checkboxes? Well, he did, he did, he did, he didn't. Measuring the stewardship between wildfire risk, um, the ecology and overall ecosystem services going on on the property, and then also the health of the business. Um, those are things that are, they're a pretty holistic approach. And I know you're going to try to pin me down, but that's a hard, hard one to wrestle with. Well, no, I think it's a good conversation, which is what we do here. Right. Um, I, I, yeah, I think, well, I guess, so to ask that, I just, so we talked about fences, fences and how expensive they are. And when you have a private landowner that sees the bill and sees the rent, they don't want to put up any cash to fix stuff when it's too much, you know, it's too much cash to fix this stuff. A lot of times they don't want to do it just because it doesn't make economic sense right away because it's a long-term investment in the land. The farmer, the rancher can see the reason why to do it. But if you have a short-term lease or a three-year lease, even like a long-term livestock lease, six years, six years, eight years is pretty long for livestock you still aren't going to put money into a 30 year property, right? You're going to put money into a five year property. Um, it's very rare that you could have a situation where you can actually really invest in long-term investments in infrastructure on a lease. But the kind of, I always, I, I tend to not compliment agencies very often, but one good thing about an agency or something like that, if you can have a dialogue and have a conversation, um, they tend to not care about spending money their drive is because they don't have to, they're not trying to turn a profit on an investment. They're managing public lands as, you know, for the benefit of the people. And so if you can, if you can make that argument that, you know, you need these fences because you need the 30 year property, they're the first ones to write a check and they tend to pay five times what it's worth to build a fence to build a fence because of that attitude. So I, that's, that's an interesting that's a, that's kind of a question, but I mean, that, that kind of is a plus side to that, but it's so dependent on having an open, honest dialogue and trust between tenant and landlord. Well, and, and we all, I mean, you know, a huge cost to your operations insurance, right? Yeah, for sure. All kinds of insurance and, and some of the yeah. cheapest insurance you can have for wildfire risk would be quality fencing and a good grazing plan. Um, but explaining why quality fencing is a good fire prevention measure, um, you might convince one person who's in charge today, they get promoted in three <laughs> years, and then you have to retrain somebody else who comes at it from a different area and has a different idea um, as to what it is. And so you're constantly having, and that's the, now, now we're getting to the downside of that kind of uh, 
those kind of land managements is like, it's very difficult to build those relationships and maintain them over a very long period of time. Um, but they are, but I would say that that relationship and that communication is essential to healthy land management. I mean, that's why the, that's why a farmer on a 160 all over the country is the best for our environment. If you have, if you have a family on 160 acres, every, you know, and all over the United States, that's the best for our environment. And that's best for our community. That's the best, but you know, economics take over and it doesn't work. And, you know, we have these situations where we have, you know, the department of fishing game owns a huge amount of land, if not the most land in California, right? Like there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of large organizations that own lots of land. And so the management decisions are being made by many different people turning over year over year over year from a very distant position. And so that in turn makes them dependent on a rancher to inform them of what, you know, some of these stewardship practices and why the check boxes that they have for all of their properties in the state don't all apply to every property in the state. You know, they're, they're guidance, but they're not, they shouldn't be law because your ranch there and my ranch an hour and a half away should be managed completely differently. You know, the trees are different here than they are there. The grasses are different here than they are there. The soils are different here than they are there. And, you know, it's. And I've seen in my career, I've seen an increased appetite for those folks to work more with the agricultural community. I I mean, I really have. I think it's born out of necessity. Absolutely. Like, I mean, you you know the (laughs) but they have they have challenges that a private landowner doesn't the other challenges would be like like i'm on a six-year lease there and you finally get a set of cows that are capped like you know on a cow deal it takes forever right you breed that cow and then it's three years later before you put them into production those genetics and we talk about those things all the time but in management of a property I, i was telling our our uh our stewardship director i think is what he's called the other day i was like I've been here six years and I'll be, I'm, I'm confident enough to finally be honest with you. I'm just now figuring out this ranch, but what are they supposed to do? Right. They can't just yeah. renew me. They can't just do that because then if they have a bad steward, they can't get rid of them. Like it's, yeah. it's a challenge for sure. But I think that every opportunity that the ag community has had to engage those folks and show them, um, how things work and how they don't. And then also be willing to listen too. I mean, I've learned some stuff from those people that, that, uh, and I hate to say words like those people, but um, from the agency folks, I, they've made me think differently and made me think about um, how, how they have decision makers ahead of them. And ultimately it's the taxpayer and what the taxpayer wants. And so um, it's been, it's been fun. Um, I'm glad that, that I have them as a landowner. And, and frankly, I think that those people who are, who are poised and willing to, to figure out how to collaborate with people like that. Um, those are the ones who will be able to have more access to property um, for grazing livestock here in California, at least, and probably in the nation in the future, for sure. Well, I mean, the, 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 the truth is, is that those, all organizations that, are, you know, land, land, land owners are fewer and bigger every year. And, that's true for private landowners and that's true for government agencies. And so, you know, if you're going to operate on scale, um, in California and probably in the United States, like you're going to have to work with people that are more distant from where you're at. Like, that's just probably what's going to happen. Like, I don't see any other way, any other way. For I that would agree. 
yeah, I don't see any other way for that to change. So, but it's opportunity and I don't know. It also, I think it also points, I mean, I wish like the importance of our, of our organizations or our, our, our representation. Um, so like Farm Bureau, Cattlemen's, Wool Growers, all of these kind of organizations, the role they have in, in um, explaining good stewardship I think is growing every year and um, those organizations they've started, they started, they were born out of necessity for political purposes, you know, very lobbying for the industry. Um, but that role has expanded over the years. And I think they have a really big role in explaining, you know, why BQA standards are important and how they apply, you know, across the board but then how they're different ranch to ranch kind of thing. The, the, the environmental stewardship piece, there's a really big role for them there because as you you need to be able to go to those further away land managers and explain to them yourself, but then also explain to them through um, sound research, through the university work through different ways on saying like, no, this is proven out. This is why it's true. It's not just me coming to you, um, telling you this is how it should be done. This is like, here's a breadth of research and information and support for what I'm trying to say to try to help separate out those, the bad operators from good operators, because there are, you know, it's, it's any business. There's going to be bad restaurants and good restaurants. There's going to be bad, um, hotels and good hotels like there's bad gas stations and good gas stations so because in same with ranching there's bad ranchers and good ranchers but to be able to explain why things are good what makes sense you know those those representation organizations are are growing in importance i think and expanding in their responsibility so that reminds me i mean you spent the last week at ncba how was that what was that like who that it was in new orleans it was a lot of fun. Did you go down like get a king cake and beads and stuff? I didn't get a king cake. No, I didn't get any beads. I did not get any beads. I went with my wife and um nobody would throw any beads at me. I don't know why, but that's anyway, a disappointment. disappointment. I know, but I did get a bunch of of uh the food's amazing down there. But um yeah, we went to NCBA. We did the um I went to the cattle facts presentation. They did a big like market report and weather update. That was pretty cool to see. Um, they went into detail onto like La Nina transition to El Nino weather patterns and like the drastic difference between the two. Um, we're in a transition right now, um, which is weather is always fun because it's all just guessing. And I thought they did a pretty good job of explaining why it's a guess. Um, but then also how you can extrapolate kind of truths or facts from, you know, because you have like your daily forecast, monthly forecast, yearly forecast, like specific, everybody wants to know how much rain are we going to get every single year? Well, you got a, whatever it is, a 3% chance of getting average. So, you know, you're not going to have that information, but what you can do is you can measure large scale shifts in like earth temperature, water temperature, things like that. And those always affect the atmosphere a certain way. And so things are going to change a way. It's just a matter of when and how dramatically. So like how far extreme is the El Nino going to be or how far extreme La Nina is going to be. Those are unknowns. 
But the fact that we're going from a La Nina to an El Nino is a real measurable thing because that you can pull water temperatures. So like the ocean will say it's an El Nino ocean. You know, the, the ocean is turning El Nino now. And it's, I don't know exactly what the ocean temperatures are, but the atmosphere reacts to those ocean temperatures over time. And that time is unknown, but when it reacts, which it will, it's just a matter of when it might be next month. It might be 12 months from now. Um, but when it does the Southern half of the unit U S gets 150 to 200% of normal rainfall. Like it's huge rains and especially in Texas and all those areas, but it's just incredibly dramatic. Whereas in La Nina extreme, you get um, like 10% of normal. So it's like, you know, you know, those extremes exist. And so, you know, you're shifting into a, wet, a wetter system or a wetter pattern with this El Nino. You just don't know volumes or when or why. And it's pretty, inter it was just really interesting to see that. That was really cool. Um, and then of course, getting into implications on markets is always fun. Um, and then uh, the trade show was absolutely blew my mind. It was my first time at NCBA too. And just like, I've been going to ASI every year for quite a long time. And, and I, I love it. I love going to ASI. It's great. It's good to network. Um, I probably did a lot more talking to people I haven't seen at ASI than I did at NCBA because the crowds are different and I don't know anybody at NCBA. But the the trade show and like the amount of um the amount of stuff that's there was just overwhelming. It was pretty cool. So did you get any free stress balls or like notepads, dental floss? Yeah, I got the coolest one. I gotta see if I can get it. So I got I think it's in my bag here. Hold on. This is a this is the epic. I forgot. I was gonna give it to one of my kids and I I was gonna give it to one of my kids and I haven't given it to him yet because I didn't get it out of my bag. But it's a, you haven't established which kid's the favorite yet, right? No, not yet. That's what no. it is. Yeah, but we'll get there. Yes. All right. So it's a, it's, I don't know, There, it's some like pregnancy fertility thing. So it's a little cow. It's a little squishy cow. It's cute, you know, on a keychain. But the best part is, is when you squeeze it, a calf pops out the back end. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. it's a cow, it's a cabby cow squeeze ball. Anyway, that was the coolest one at the, at the trip, but. Um, that is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So maybe, I mean, this is a sheep podcast. It's sheep stuff you should know. And I know that uh, Amy Livestock is a diversified operation. Mostly, I mean, the strength is through the diversity because you um, – Oh, if we didn't usually have the cows, we'd probably be broke right now with what happened <laughs> in the sheep market last year. But what? Two years ago, the sheep deal was driving the bus, right? Yeah. So, oh, Yeah. How do you, they aren't mutually exclusive, but they are, it's not like, it's not like the cattle market's bad. So we need to get rid of all the, or we need to ramp up on sheep or the sheep market's bad. We need to ramp up on cattle. Like how do you balance that in a diversified portfolio? Yeah. So um, first off is, is, so for me, we we look at our ranch as we are um, grass ranchers. Right. We're, we're, we're growing and harvesting grass. The value of our company is in the grass that we grow and our ability to harvest that grass as efficiently as possible. That means that if you can plant wheat and get it off and put it in a truck and take it to a mill and sell it, and it makes more money than running a cow, we should be doing that. Um, we don't think it does. And so that's why we don't do that. But um, you know, we will cut, we're going to cut a little hay this year ourselves because hay has gotten so crazy. 
Um, we blocked off a piece and we're going to put up a bit of grass hay. It won't be the same quality as what you can buy, but it's going to save us a substantial amount of cash um, and put up some good roughage that we need. Um, so as far as the breeding herd and the dry ground, we're really looking at harvesting the most feed. Um, I mentioned we talked about our our soils. Um, we have really deep top soils. It's a heavy clay. Um, our biggest problem right now, when we had all that rain, your beautiful, I saw your beautiful guardian bull that, you know, one of your oh, yeah. premier bulls out there and, um, just beautiful stud. And he's, uh, breeding some second calving cows, I think right now. And I felt bad, uh, but, um, I, I drove by the, I got a call that our fence was down in the field that he was in. I'm like, ah. Crap. All right. Well, I'm right here. I'll go out and do it, even though I don't want to. So I go out there and here's the bull guardian on the side of the road, eating the stuff on the side of the road and the fence is down. And at first I thought, oh, a car went through it. And then I went and looked at the posts and what he did is he put his head under the fence, picked it up and walked underneath. And so he just literally picked, and this is a 36 inch woven wire metal T posts with uh, electric wire on the top. The electric had gone dead. And that's why he was able to get under it. But um, he just literally picked up the fence and put it down. So I go and I push him back in and he doesn't want to go in the field. And I'm like, ah, you stubborn bugger, get in there. And so I finally get him and he walks in. And when he walks into our fire guard, the poor guy sinks to, <laughs> sinks to his brisket. Oh, wow. <laughs> because it's so wet. Right, and right. Like, you can't like, and then he walks and he walks and he doesn't want to move because it's hard to walk. It's a, it's a lot of effort. And he's just got to trudge through this. Just, I mean, he's sinking. Cause you got, he's a 2000 pound, you know, bull. He's a big, big, big son of a gun. And he can't take a step without his leg going, you know, a foot into the ground. Even Were you wearing the, your converses or boots? Hey dudes. Oh, perfect. So your My feet were soggy too. Yeah. Ah, a little bit, you know, I wasn't sinking, you know, I'm a, I'm a spry little young, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Tiny guy. No, those fire guards are bad too. Aren't they? Like the, oh, yeah. for some reason, it was, it was really easy to fix a fence though. Cause I just picked it up and slammed it in the ground and oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. let's get a little hammer on the top and you're good to go. But no, I mean that ground. So like you get, it gets super soggy like that when it's wet. So we can't overstock with cows in our hills. If you put too many cows in our fields in the hills, um, the cow's feet fall apart. You have huge health problems. They can't walk. They, they can't nurse well. I mean, try nursing on a cow when the cow is sunk to its udder. Like, it's hard for a calf to get up in there. Um, I mean, that's not all the fields that are in spots. And thankfully, we have wind roads and all those things. But um, the point is, is you can't overstock that ground. And so we have to have ewes in order to harvest all of the feed in the field. And we could use goats too, if we wanted or pasture poultry or something, but we need something other than cows. If we're going to harvest all of that pasture and turn it into sellable product, protein and wool. And so we always, we're always going to have to have some sheep or maybe I'll have to buy some goats someday. I don't know, but we're always going to have to have some because we need to harvest all of that feed or we'll have to become a farmer or something like that, where you plant the whole field. Um, on our irrigated pasture, though, where you're buying in stalker cattle and stalker lambs, um, you have this crop, which is your irrigated pasture. In that, you have a choice on what you're going to buy and harvest it with. And that's a essentially, it's a six-month investment. So you're going to buy a stalker calf or buy a lamb, and within six months, you'll have it sold, and you'll have another animal you're replacing with. 
And so with that, you look more at markets, you look at shorter term trends, and you decide which one has the most opportunity or the least. And you go ahead and and buy off of market indicators and value, perceived value, all that stuff. So that's um, that ground can go 100% cattle, 100% sheep, and usually it's somewhere in between every year. And that decision and ratio changes constantly because it's a different different type of system. Does that make any sense? I kind of ramble a lot there. I like yeah, telling yeah, my story no, about I, the bull. I, you're doing a good job rambling because I see my internet connections unstable and like you freeze up and then you unfreeze and I'm like, man, we better let Ryan do most of the talking because oh, it's all this your podcast fault too. Be jump, when you you froze a couple of times and I just jumped in and smoothed over that transition. Ain't nobody going to know when you, when you froze. <laughs> I really wish this was on YouTube because if they just saw your face frozen, it would have been an instant hit. You'd have been a meme. It's perfect. Yeah. No, so... NCBA, like you mentioned networking, what, is there something different for everyone there? Or um, would you go back again? Like, so NCBA, I, it's a, that's an interesting one. Um, yes, I would go back again. Um, NCBA is a, well, it's a, it's a political organization first. And so there's a lot of business that gets done there. The cattle industry is huge. Um, there is a lot of dollars that are made by a lot of different people in a lot of different segments. Um, and your large production segments are represented very well there. So your pack house, your packers and, and that they're all, they're all very well represented there. And there's a lot of business that gets done. Um, it's not like, uh, I don't know. It's not a producer education outreach event. Um, there's that element there, but that's not the focus of NCBA. Um, if I was to go, I would have gone a day earlier. So the day I arrived, I got in that night and that day was loaded with a bunch of fertility type talks that talked about cow fertility, pregnancy, all, all everything related to that subject. And I wish I would have made those talks. Um, this, the days we were there, it was more kind of economic and then the business meetings and the trade show. So we spent a lot of our time there. We also, I do our, we do our company. So our internal Amy livestock company budget planning meetings. We do those at a, we try to go somewhere and do those. And we usually either do it at ASI or now we did it at NCBA. So we had three, two to three hour meetings sprinkled in on the three days we were there too, that were completely separate. And so that takes you away from meetings. But um, the other, the other, the one thing that was really neat though is I mentioned that trade show, um, and I feel like if you have, if you're looking for some type of thing, if you're looking for a new cattle shoot, um, you go to NCBA, you pay your little uh, your registration fee. You can do a minimum just trade show, and then you go and you literally have every single nice hydraulic cattle shoot set up right next to each other they actually have a live demo where they'll run cattle into all of the shoots and show you how they all work and the differences between them and it's a really good way to kind of see like okay we work our cattle this way this shoot looks like it would probably work for us the best um i really i looked at a steam flaker while i was there that was kind of cool um there that's a that's a that's a wishless item but if you get a you put a broiler in in california it opens up a bunch of osha inspections and, and it's you know, be a huge, um, permit challenge. And so we're probably not going to do anything there, but plus it costs like 200 grand for one. Um, wow. but, um, but it's really cool. Cause the, um, 
you end like when you steam flake corn, you end up using like a hundred percent, almost a hundred percent of its, I think it's like 98, 99% of its, um, feed value gets utilized when, you know, all the starches get used. Whereas if you feed like cracked corn, like we are, um, you're only using like 60, 70% or something like it. it's a lot less. And so you're able to improve your, um, conversion ratio and the efficiency of that feed so well when you steam flake it. And um, you can't buy steam flaked to the, to the size and scope that you need it because of spoilage, right? Um, I would say we, we can't, we can't because the steam flakers are being used by the dairies and show feed and mills. And if, you know, if we had a steam flaker, we'd be running it and selling steam flake corn to neighbors kind of mm. thing as much as we're feeding it to our own sheep because there there's a it's such a high value feed um but then also like corn in california is such a challenge in general like to put in the money into steam flaker for corn and then we switch to wheat in three years just because of availability issues like why why would we do that of course you could steam flake wheat but um anyway that was cool to see the other thing we looked at um we've been we've been working internally on building our own kind of pasture management system um like computer management thing. And so visiting some of those, they have a bunch of those there. That was really interesting. Um, and then there's a ton of just random things. Like there's some guy selling like a pheromone that you can, um, I think you like pour on the cow and it dot, it calms them down. Um, it's like the, the pheromone or it's, it's a, yeah, it's a pheromone or something that they pulled off of a milk, like the udder on a newborn, cow a new when a calf cow has a calf there's like a pheromone that they excrete and they like remade it and then you pour it on and it's supposed to calm them down thought it was funny like you have to bring a crazy cow in and put it in the corral and then spray a pheromone on it so it calms down for a few hours i thought it was kind of funny but <laughs> like there's all sorts of crazy things like that it's kind of cool so that you see a lot of new stuff and anyway it was good there's a there's one of the stars from yellowstone was there so that's cool anybody who's a fan of that show um Wait, do you watch Yellowstone? No, I don't. I, yeah, I no, watch I a couple figure. episodes, but John and Justin all do. And I mean, my parents are like huge fans of it. So it's, I mean, it's we, funny. It's cold. We live man. it though, man. We like we we're living Yellowstone every day. Like the whole you know kind of not really. Yeah, no, like literally, <laughs> like not well, not the extremes, but like the whole like there's so many premises in that show, like you know, the the outside um unknown developers buying up all the ground and how do you like all that stuff is so real <laughs> yeah oh yeah the sovereign nation stuff is real like yeah, a lot of that stuff is real yeah yeah, it's yeah but totally. it's not real that if i get frustrated i get my hired guy to go take care of the problem though that's yeah, not no real. like yeah i we have not we, i don't have a giant trailer with blacked out ATVs that we and a helicopter that we take out and have a gunfight with. You have like John Kidwell putting on black yeah, gloves we, and like take it off, right? We don't have any of that, but but yeah, I don't know. But it's cool though. Yeah, it's 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 there's some fun stuff there. I always do like when they show the cows on that show though too, because they always kind of they they've done a better job. I think as I've seen episodes go, but the first season I watched like four episodes of the first season and I thought it was funny the. They were like, oh, that cow, it's it's lame in its back foot. We got to get rid of it. And then they'd show a picture of a cow calf in the field and it would like not even close to what they're <laughs> talking about. You see little things like that. But And you being the genetic guy that you are, I don't know if you can handle that. 
Be picking. Them I made apart. it through one episode, but not for yeah. the reasons you'd think. I mean, I, I I had some friends that I never ever would have thought they'd be into it, and they yeah. just love it, love it, love it. And so I was like, okay, I'll try, I'll try it. And it just wasn't. It wasn't for me. It wasn't yeah, for me. Same, I mean, I, same here. I just, I, I think there's some stuff that frustrates me about it in general. Um, but there've been a lot of benefits. I will admit, out of the show, there have been benefits. But cool. It's reached a, it's reached a population that doesn't get to experience that. It's, it's allowed us to kind of, you know, you talk about like telling your story or telling the reasons why you do things. Like it actually does a really good job of kind of bringing up some issues and and um, like bringing a topic into the public conversation to a demographic that we don't reach on a daily basis. No, exactly. Some of like the environmental stuff, the, um, the anti-meat stuff. I mean, that stuff's all really good. So So it's funny though. I do like some of my friends in Montana are like the Yellowstone effect on land ownership is real. And I said, yeah, it's just like my dad used to say, my dad said what ruined the price of Wranglers was urban cowboy. Urban cowboy came out and my Wranglers that I wear went to 1999 a pair. Oh man. That's cheap now. Take that. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. I've never been to NCBA. I've been to CCA and I've enjoyed that. Um, uh, I've been to the Angus Association Convention. That was an yeah. outstanding networking opportunity. That's that's what I found for most of these things for me that suits me is, like you said, the trade show. Sometimes it'll spark a little management technique or a tool you need yeah. to consider bringing in to improve the the efficiency of your operation or the, the overall workplace environment of your employees and your people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the networking pieces have always been outstanding to me. Always. You, yeah. You'll be shocked at how many people you uh, you know who are there, actually. I mean, uh, that's what I would have yeah. been surprised. I'm like, we're neighbors and didn't know we were going to this and we're both here. Yeah. So, yeah, I think NCBA for you, you definitely run into people you knew. Uh, me, I, I don't know. You know, I'm just a crazy sheep guy. So but <laughs> I'm not as tied in with the cattle industry as i am with a sheep and so i didn't really know many people there but um i'd say probably the best thing for me the best part of that whole thing was going with um you know the management team me and john and justin and um going out to dinner and absolutely hanging out and and uh i mean that was to me that was probably the best uh yeah no it's funny i was talking today uh, or yesterday at a different kind of place where i choose to volunteer my time and and I said, it's interesting how in companies we can have, a, talking about checklists earlier, we could have all the check boxes. Like I make blueberry pan- pancakes for my employees. I allowed them to bring a therapy dog. You have flexible work hours and you could still not have culture, but you can do those things and you can truly have culture and little things like, like just yeah. taking a crew to NCBA and just hanging out and getting to know them better. And you guys have a great culture at Amy Livestock. I mean, I've seen it and I've, I've been a part of it. I feel like I'm part of that culture and I'm, I'm a yeah. vendor, right? Kind of, kind of a vendor, kind of a friend, but like that culture piece in an operation, these, when you can take a, a vacation kind of, but still be in the arena of your vocation, it's a unique opportunity to take advantage of building culture. I think yeah. that's true. Yeah. I think, um, now you spark something there. Um, cultures, you can't dictate culture. I, I mean, that's, I mean, and corporations are very good at attempting it and do a good job of establishing it to a point. But at the end of the day, culture is a choice. It's not a, you can't mandate it. So even like Facebook or, you know, some of these big tech companies, 
they have a culture that's super cool. Google, super cool, super inclusive. You know, you get all free food, whatever, all this stuff. And like, we're going to, this is a cool vibe and driving for all this stuff. And then they announced 15,000 unemotional, unpersonal layoffs <laughs> and just boom, blanket, fire people. I, my, <laughs> fire them, fire them. At, at, they send an email. So <laughs> I have a friend who works at Google and, um, he actually ended up getting getting a uh, pink slip, but he didn't get the fire like the fire fire. He got like, all right, finish your project, and then at the project you can reapply for the same job kind of thing. But um, he had other people he knew that basically you have like a login card where you log in to do your work, and at um, two in the morning an email came through, you're terminated with Google nothing works. You go try to log in in the morning. Everything's dead. You're locked out of the whole company, your whole life, you know, everything you've been working on, boom, gone. Like, so like you could have all that culture, but if you don't take the time to relate personally and actually recognize that, um, you are working with, you know, unique individual persons and you depersonalize that stuff, like you can't, you know, you can't dictate that culture. Like, that's that's built from a relational standpoint and understanding from both top management to bottom management that like you know we respect you we appreciate you like and we see you like we actually see you as a person and so if we're going to lay somebody off we're going to tell them we're going to sit down we're going to recognize them as a personal situation we're going to you know say gosh you know you're a single guy working here um you got these problems this is why we have to let you go but um, we're also going to give you opportunities. Here's some support stuff. Like, how can we help you through this transition so that way you don't get left out with no money on the curb? Like, you know, that takes effort and time, and it's important to do. And um, if you do those things, that that builds culture. If you go and make a checklist and give about a free stuff, you just give a bunch of entitlements and no. <laughs> well, and that's what this this headhunter lady. She was a yeah. headhunter lady and super super bright. And she goes, "What we found is like." When we had Pancake Fridays, it was all good. Or uh, I'm I'm saying this figuratively, right? Pancake yeah. Fridays, and then all of a sudden, people were complaining because they wanted gluten free pancakes, and then the other people wanted blueberry pancakes, and the other people wanted strawberry pancakes, and it was like this huge. And I don't know if I told you this, or it was my dad on the phone, but it was like now we have all these problems over the pancakes. And I said, well, the problem is, is you were worried about pancakes, and you weren't worried about culture because a culture it, it, it takes into context your entire crew and your entire environment, right? Because if you're surrounded by people that are most comfortable being more introverted and more comfortable um, and productive. In a different, you don't want to have like a, a team building Christmas party where everybody has to hold hands because that doesn't that doesn't help with culture, right? And so, I'm really hands on with our people and and really just try to dive in and figure out what makes them tick. And it's really small right now. It's uh, just Wyatt and and my boys, and but they each have their own individual personality and what and knowing those people. And I'm reluctant to say buttons to push because that just sounds so bad, but. It, each people have different buttons that they like pushed. And and I just try to do little random acts of kindness all the time, be randomly understanding, but then assert leadership. Um, don't just try to stand on a hill and say that I have it, you know? Um, yeah. I think being a good manager, um, a, you know, I, I was at a meeting recently where everybody likes making the comment about the millennials and they laugh and they're like, oh, the millennial workforce. <laughs> and I've thought, you know, 
I mean, I've had challenges in the workplace managing people, but I, I wouldn't say it was the Gen Xers or the millennials or the baby boomers or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, um, I think if you find out what makes certain people tick um, and make them feel valued and a part of the workplace, I don't know that it matters what box you put them in. I, yeah. I, I value our culture over maybe, over maybe anything here, to be honest with you. And maybe but, that's, maybe that's a fault. No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think you can ever underestimate that. Um, because, and it's not, it's not culture, it's persons, right? You can't, you gotta just, if you're gonna work with someone, you might as well invest yourself in the well-being of that person. And that's a hard thing to do, but you need to like that. If you're going to be a good manager of people, you need to be vested in those people and truly um, be interested in them as persons and, and um, you know, essentially do what you can to help. And I'm not perfect in it. I really, I try. And as my job has evolved, it's been more and more difficult for me to spend those hours in the field with those guys building those relationships. And so I try to build those relationships with the management and then encourage those managers to build those relationships with the other guys. Um, but that's all really hard work. Um, but it, you, you just, it's gotta be, it's, it's person to person and it's just, it gets down to these personal relationships at the end of the day. And so I enjoy making yeah. good cattle, Ryan. I have a huge passion for it, but I really do love being the lead of a crew. And what I mean by that is not leading from the front. I mean, just collaborating with people, getting to know them, making them feel valued. I mean, that's that's probably one of the most enjoying parts. Uh, most The most enjoyment I find out of my vocation is spending time with the people. Like, I, And it's taken me a long time to learn that. Um, but... Uh, and and you're right. It's 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 bigger than culture. It's more individual. It's more personal. Because if you make decisions for the culture, you probably yeah. aren't taking into account the individuals, right? So, I if you, I like growing things. I like seeing lambs grow. I like them being created. I like them being born. I like them getting growing. I like weaning them. And then I like enjoying a lamb chop. Like I like to see the growth to the, to, to perfection. No, you know, <laughs> whatever you want yeah, to call yeah. it. I like seeing growth. Uh, you know, I like, I, I like seeing all that stuff. And I think it's important to recognize that I also enjoy that in persons. Like when I can, when, when one of my favorite things or proudest moments is being able to, to walk with and, and work with, uh, Marcos Franco, who, came here on an H2A visa. He worked for us for 12 years. I, you know, him and I worked together up through the company. He ended up, he got his green card, um, bought a house, has a family, married a couple kids. And, um, then he ended up, he left the company because he started his own company, his own trucking company. And like, he's grown like in the growth of him into this just outstanding human person. And me being able to walk with that and see that, like, that's what excites me. It excites me just as much as seeing like sheep grow and cows grow. Like, I mean, that's, I don't know, just, you love seeing that growth in a person. And I, I just, I really, to me, that gets back to culture. Like you can't dictate that passion and that enjoyment. You have to just enjoy it and then let that express itself through your actions somehow. Like you got to really value when, like when Jeff Clark um, left the company for a better job, like I'm happy for him. It's it's good to see growth. It's good to see that kind of stuff. 
when you can promote somebody within the company to a management position, that's good. That's exciting. That's, I love to see that growth. Those are my favorite conversations and things to have is being able to like promote a guy or, you know, have that discussion about improving someone's life. You know, it's just, and if that, that doesn't, that's not exclusive to staying in the company. And I'm not, so how do you, I'm not encouraging everybody to leave the company if you're, <laughs> but at the same time, like, it's just, to me, I think it's really important that when you vest yourself in a person, you need to truly want their best for them. And if they see their best as an outside opportunity, you have to encourage that. And I think that's where, when you, when you're, uh, when you get really wrapped into kind of that out, I, I'll call it the corporate mindset, but really it's like a, you know, company first team player type of thing. Like in sports, when someone goes and plays for the other team, you don't like them no more. But right. if you're really vested in the person and they go and play for that other team because they offered them $10 million a year instead of the 5 million you can pay them here. And they think that's going to give them the best life. I mean, you should be happy for them. Be like, that's great. Like we talked about the 49ers, but, uh, earlier before we turned the log on, I'm a big 49ers fan and I'm heartbroken because have you boy, noticed my boy have you Brock Purdy the... hurt his elbow. Oh. But I, let me finish this because this I, I think this is really cool. And a, like the 49ers organization, what I love about what they've done is D'Amico Ryan's their defensive coordinator. And sorry Absolutely. for all the non-football fans. I'm gonna bore you with all this stuff. But I swear it, it gets back to what we're talking about. When he got hired as a head coach for the University of Texas John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan and the players, everybody said, we are so happy for him as a person. He deserves this. We are excited for him. He's going to do well. We just, yes, it hurts to see him go because we love him. We appreciate him. We value him, but he's earned that. And we are so proud of him to have that opportunity. And when you can take that position as a company, as a manager of people, and say, I am so glad that that person is leaving and has a better life over there. You're valuing your people because that's, that's what valuing people is, is valuing them above and beyond yourself and your selfish needs or your, and selfish isn't the right term, but you know, Oh, I wish I could have that guy still here. Cause he was, he was what kept it together and made my living. Like, no, you need to be, if you're vested in those people, you need to encourage them to be better every day. And if that means going somewhere else, you got to support that. And if you can have that mentality of saying my star best coach on my staff is leaving and going somewhere else, you got to see that that is great for him. And it's also great for everybody in our company because we now have an opportunity to, 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 to raise and develop another next best person. Like this is so cool and got to get into that. Like that's culture. That's, that's valuing the person. And to me, like, regardless of what you're doing, that's what you have to have. So that's so, that's so well stated. The question I was going to ask you was loaded. I mean, it was, it was, how do we balance the economics of a business with the personal development of people we care about? And that's your answer, right? The 49ers have done it and the wins will come. And I, it's a great analogy because it's it's football and it's sports. And I was also going to say, you know, I, we haven't mentioned, we did mention it out of a podcast too. All the best banter is always before the red light starts flashing, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, lifelong 49ers fan. Did you did you have, so you'll, you'll get the hate mail, but you deserve it. We got it over college football talk on ours. So um, did you have the gold jacket? Like we're the same age, right? You had the gold jacket as a no, kid. No, I had the I had the puffy the puffy red um, the starter ones with the yeah, front starter, flap that you yeah, open up I and had, put your hands inside. Yeah, I had that one. 
No, I had one of those in Florida State because of Warwick Dunn at the time. But no, uh, I as a little little kid, there's a picture Florida of me. State, floating what around. are you doing, Florida State? Oh, they were good That's at the terrible. time. I'm a bandwagoner. Yeah, it was fine. That's so horrible, um, man. You take of all of the colleges, you pick like the most hated <laughs> Notre Dame rivalry. It, uh, it's terrible, terrible. But back to the topic at hand. <laughs> I'm gonna uh, type. I'm gonna type out a hate mail right now. That's perfect. Yeah. Well, at least you'll get a review that way. That's Signed it too, anonymous. Right? <laughs> anonymous, my favorite review guy. Yes. Or like, or like, uh, or like, uh, what would the other one be? Angus Dad Four. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> those guys are always fun to hear their reviews from. But uh, no, no, stick horse, cowboy hat, boots, uh, a blue pearl snap shirt, just like this, with my gold 49ers jacket on top. Yeah. But they're fun to root for again, right? And yeah, it's because of culture. It's because of investing in the people, like you said. Did you did you see the 49ers got like seven compensatory picks from hiring minorities that then got rehired somewhere else? Yeah, but that's also that's what I get to. That's 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 person development. That's right. developing a person, moving them on. And so that's one thing they we get we get complimented on our culture at Amy Livestock. But that's um something my grandpa taught me. Like so many of the there's a lot of people that are foremen or managers at neighboring ranches that my grandpa trained. And like, that is such a huge compliment to the organization that he built because he was developing persons and developing with the capacity to do those jobs anywhere. And like, that's really cool. And, and that's one thing I really try to do, or we really try to value is like, we want that culture. We want that, um, that, that belief in people and, you know, ultimately it comes down to a little trust, you know, because when you say when you're mad that someone's leaving and you're worried about what can happen, you're not confident in your own ability to train another person, encourage another person to come up. And so um, if that's the case, you need to really look at like, how are you training people? How are you teaching them things? How can you in, get better at that? Like, because that that's if you're going to trust in people and allow the freedom for them to move on without grudges. You have to spend time training everybody. You have to spend time cross training. You have to spend time making sure people know what you're doing, make sure people know what the person next to him is doing. Like, and, and that, that all builds kind of that community and culture. And you know, like I said, it's, it's vesting in persons. It's, it's building a person regardless of who you are and where you come in from. So. So what about an operation that's a little bit smaller in scope and scale? Um, yeah, how do they you can bear hire, the hire only one guy, right? Yeah, and you lose yeah. that guy and you lose that institutional knowledge and then you have to bring in a new guy or gal to take over that. I mean, you've got all that loss. Yeah. What do you recommend to some of our more mid-sized or smaller producers that are trying yeah. to ham and egg this together and survive in the meanwhile? No, I think that's super hard. And um, I think it's hard on because when that happens, you tend to lean on your family harder and that makes it hard, you know, on everybody, right? That stresses marriages and stress marriages reflect everywhere. And so you gotta, you gotta, um, you gotta be conscious of that. Um, but then I, I'd, I'd say you just have to be aware of that risk when you hire somebody and you have to, <clears throat> I don't know how to say it. Um, if you um if you hire someone and it's only one person and you they're in a position where they're if they left you would be crippled 
you need to make sure you're compensating them for that value. And, and compensation is not just cash. It's, it's um, value appreciation, all of those kind of things. Um, because if you're bringing someone in, just to irrigate a field, you can teach someone to irrigate pretty quick. Um, do a ir- good job irrigating is difficult, but you know, you can teach someone to, to change sets and stuff like that. But if it's somebody who you're leaning on to run the whole operation and that operation is providing a livelihood for you and your family only, and you're paying that guy minimum wage and he has to live off the ranch or, you know, you're not, you're not treating him as the same as the people in your family. Like you got to treat him the same. And, and that's probably where it gets difficult because uh, most of the time there's not enough cash generated in those smaller operations to compensate equitably there. Or I don't even want to say equitably just because oftentimes there's misconceptions of what they deserve. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And so. it, I guess the levity of it didn't really hit me of the value of culture yeah. or personnel or whatever we're talking about. It hit me this summer. Um, you know, it's no news to you that my boss died that I worked for for years. Mm-hmm. And and then tragically, really close after that, his wife died. Um, and so um, I'm working with the family and they've been they've been fantastic to deal with. But um, uh, to my culture comment, what really hit me is, is I have an employee here who I care a lot about. And and when I say care a lot about, um, I care enough about him to let him fail. And I'll unpack that a little bit here in a second, but, um, he came to me and he said, you've got a family of six you need to worry about. And I know that you care about this operation. He said, if you need to go do something else, for your family, I'll make sure to see this through to be fair to the family. And I was like, now we've got something, right? So we yeah. got to figure out how to make sure that he's always taken care of because this guy is that loyal run through brick wall. And you said it, you said compensation. Compensation is so much more than money. This gentleman oh, yeah. drives two and a half hours each way. He can make just as much money as a chick, a Chick-fil-A shift manager. Um, but, uh, but we give him opportunity. You know, he went on a he went on a tour of Angus operations during his honeymoon last summer. Called me and he said, "I like this bull." I said, "All right, yeah. order forty units of semen. We're going to be forty cows to him." He goes, "Well, I, I do I like him that much?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to give you the opportunity because we yeah. have to give them opportunity to fail within ob- obviously the constraints of the operation." But uh, yeah. I don't know where we we're going with that. We said this well, would be a rambling it, podcast, but yeah, but and it's all, but it's also it gets back to like not be afraid. Like you have to be realistic and not be afraid to train some, like to train them to where they have the skills to leave. Right, a lot of people yep. they'll train someone to a point, but then try to like keep them at a level to where they can't move on, <laughs> like kind of thing, you know. And and it's you can't be afraid of that. Um, because I mean, at the end of the day, if you're if you have a good culture and you're treating people right and you're taking care of them, and somebody leaves, there's a lot of good people in this world. And if you ask around and work through a couple, you will find another one. You'll find another person and have an opportunity to do the same thing with them. But you have to trust in that. And trusting in the unknown is hard. Like that's hope, right? You got to hope. And um, you know, a lot of people run around with false hope. But you got to have hope and it's just you, you know you got you gotta you know you just have to make a choice like am i gonna live like that or am i gonna stress out and 
keep this guy down. You know, <laughs> like you gotta, yeah, you just gotta. Oh, that's trust. that's when I decided I, I had a customer one time. I did a customer visit and uh, they AI breed a lot of heifers and they have a vet do it and uh, they've done it for years and years and years and years. And I said, uh, you ever thought of training one of your guys to do it? And uh, the manager said, do you know, uh, if you do that, then they'll leave and find something else and you don't have them anymore. And I thought, man, I never want to be that. And I never want to work hard. Like I, I compartmentalize that customer then. And I say, well, I'm going to take your business as I get it. But those people don't feed into the culture that we promote in our operation. And uh, so, yeah, no, it's fun, man. It's a challenge. And when you say hope, if you can't walk outside every day and take care of a set of lambs or take care of a set of cattle, and take care of the land and take care of think about the ancestry and, but and isn't that i mean that's why you love seeing growing things because yeah. growing things is hope realized right you 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 hope for a good lamb crop and you see it and you're happy like that's what it's from it's yeah yeah that's why you love it yeah absolutely and that's a cool and, thing you know every in, in every year the grass is gonna die and it's gonna grow might not grow good it might grow thin it might grow light but you know, at the end of the day, it's going to die, but then it's going to grow. And like, you always got to be focused on that growth. And that's cool. I don't know. Yeah, it's a cool why, that's location. Why I do, that's why I do what I do, man. I just, I love that stuff. I mean, it's just, that's, yeah, that's where I, that's where I, that's where I thrive, I think. So I agree hundred percent. Anyway, my friend, um, first off, do you want to, you got a sign off pro promo. You got uh, Angus underground. Uh, you got anything you want to say about your guys there? Shout out recommendations. Oh yeah. I got a guy. No, I got a, I got a new listener. If you made it this far, I would guess yeah. at about minute 43, you checked out. Cause I'm yeah. watching the ticker tape here and we've been rambling for a while. Ron Waldron from Ohio raises Dorpers, a loyal listener of the Angus underground. I've sent him a text, uh, to, to follow sheep stuff. You should know. And, uh, he was going to check it out. I, hopefully he hears this episode. Um, Thanks for the opportunity to come on. I always, I just enjoy visiting with you and I enjoy being conversational. I mean, I hope, okay. I hope we touched on some things that some people have thought about and, and you could send me DMS and whatever. I mean, I hope to one day unpack the the podcast, social media thing with you a little bit because yeah. interest, it's a, it's an interesting premise, balancing that with a family and, and why we're doing it. Um, and that was actually, that was supposed to be our centralized topic, right? I think you sent that to me, but I like, I, I thrive on tangents. So no, 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 this is good. This is good. This is good yeah. stuff. We get stuff. to Thanks. it, but I think we're an hour and 20 in. So I think we may, like, any, any, any more, we're going to Joe Rogan it. And I don't, I don't think I have the airtime for that. So no, I don't have a bottle of electrolytes here. So I've yeah. enjoyed my time. Thanks for having me on. And, no and uh, it's a real privilege. So thank you guys. And thanks for listening to me. For sure. All right. Well, this has been Sheep Stuff You Should Know. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Angus Underground. Thank you, uh, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Joe.